Let's pray together once more, why don't we? Father, thank you for your word. You haven't given us a a handbook like a manual to our car. You haven't given us a storybook with nice stories and illustrations. You've given us a book that is your very communication to us. Teaches us about who you are, what you're like, what you've done for us, so dramatically, so pivotally, so life changingly, world changingly. And Father, we want to embrace what you say in this book. We come to you this morning and we humble ourselves before your word. We seek to sit under your word and not to elevate ourselves over, over it. We seek to hear clearly what you say, and we want to come with a heart posture that says, whatever you teach us is true, we believe, and whatever you command us to do, we will seek to do. We won't seek to do it in our own strength, because that's no good. We'll fail, always. But we, we seek to obey what you say by the power of your Holy Spirit dependent on the grace that you offer day by day, moment by moment. So as we listen this morning to your word, as we seek to come to terms with what your word says on a contentious and difficult subject, we pray that you would give us hearts that are pliable, that you would instruct us, give us wisdom and discernment. But most of all, Father, would you give us ears to hear what's really there to be heard. And give us all, men, women, children, whatever circumstance we are, give us all submissive hearts, submissive to your word, no matter what the cost, no matter what changes need to be made, and no matter how much we, we don't understand in the moment. We pray that your grace would bring clarity and would bring power for obedience. We want to live more like our Savior. We want to submit the way that He submits. So we pray for your help. I pray for your help for me as I speak. I pray for all these who are listening, that they would hear your word in the midst of mine, and that you would be honored and glorified by what we do and how we listen and how we respond this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we are talking about the S word. Not the three-letter S word that we will be talking about in a couple of weeks. The other S word, as often it is depicted to us uh, as almost a naughty word not to be spoken or said or discussed. Uh, the idea that Christian wives submit to their husbands. And I want to say up front that this message is not just for wives, not just for women. It is a message very much for husbands as well as wives, a word for both husbands and wives. And so everybody needs to listen. Everybody needs to hear what we're saying this morning carefully. 
And in fact, we have to begin. We're going to begin this morning with a word directed to husbands about wives. So everyone listen and everyone seek to glean what we have here from the Lord. So as we begin, we start in 1 Peter 3, the passage that we read during our singing time. Christian wives are equal heirs of grace with husbands. That's where we need to begin. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 specifically. Peter writes, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter gives a command to the husbands here that is often understood real generically as live with your wives in an understanding way, meaning, husbands, be understanding towards your wives, be patient with them, extend grace to them, and seek to get to know them as well as you possibly can. Uh, find out their idiosyncrasies, find out what their preferences are, what they like and what, they, what they're interested in. Be devoted to being a student of your wife. And all of that is really good advice. But I'm going to put that in the column of common sense, husbands. If, if you didn't know that you're supposed to get to know your wife, well, come on, men. You should get to know your wife. It's good for you. It's good for her. It's just smart. But that's not what I don't think Peter's talking about here. He, his phrase literally, his command to husbands more literally is, live with your wives according to knowledge. And that raises the question, what knowledge? What knowledge? And I think Peter gives us the answer in the next two phrases that he says. He says, you need to live with your wives according to two pieces of knowledge. You need to live with your wives based on two facts about them. Because when you know these two facts together about your wife, it changes the way you relate to them. It changes the way you treat them. It changes the way you think about them from day to day. So what does he say? Live with your wives according to knowledge, showing honor to the woman as, number one, the weaker vessel. So Peter first says, the first thing you need to know about your wife is that she is the weaker vessel. Now, he says that you should be showing honor to her as the weaker vessel. So knowing that she's weaker, in whatever specific way Peter means, shouldn't cause you to think poorly of her. Shouldn't think, cause you to think that she's inferior to you. Instead, her weakness should move you to give her honor, to elevate her. And that's just normal Christianity. That is being like God who treats the weaker with great honor, who calls all of us to honor those who are weaker. We are not a community of people who elevates the strong and the talented and the best. That's not what Christianity is supposed to be about. We are supposed to be the people who give greater attention and greater care to those who need it most, the weak among us. And so, know this first of all, that your wife is a weaker vessel. What's Peter talking about? And weaker in what way? Well, what he definitely doesn't mean is weaker spiritually, that she's somehow inferior in any spiritual way. He clears that up right away in the very next phrase. But he, he probably is just speaking generically about physical weakness. And in his setting, just to give you some insight into where Peter's coming from, it would be even more prevalent and prominent than we think about in our culture, for sure, because most of the marriages in Peter's day were between an older man and a younger woman. And what I mean by that is to say that typically when marriage happened in this Jewish world, 
You have a man who was approaching his 30s, if not already there, marrying a woman who was, brace yourselves, 12, 13, or 14. That's normal. That's typical. So just put aside the gender stereotypes for just a moment. A 30-year-old man is going to be stronger than a 14-year-old girl, typically, right? So that's his normality that he's working from. So generically... We could go to biology and we could suggest things that Peter didn't know that are reasons that are, have this generic, uh, this generic weakness that's there too, but we won't for the time being. Nevertheless, that's probably what Peter's highlighting. Know that she's a weaker vessel. But then immediately, Peter adds another statement that kind of creates a tension. So you know that she's a weaker vessel, but then secondly, you know, and this is the more important piece that you need to know, that she is a, an heir with you, a co-heir with you of the grace of life. So what Peter means there is the second thing you need to know and the more important thing that you need to know about your wife is that she was an equal heir of God's grace with you. That means two things, that she is both needing God's grace as much as you are, no more, no less, and also she is dependent on God's grace just as much as you are. And so what that means for a husband is if she needs grace from God to live the way she's supposed to live, then you ought to cut her some slack. You ought to extend your own grace to her. There ought to be a measure of understanding. So going back to the traditional way of understanding this passage, it affects your expectations. She needs God's grace as much as you do. And if she's going to grow as a wife, as a woman, as a follower of Jesus, she needs God's grace. And so husbands shouldn't be harsh with their wives. That's Colossians 3, which we're not going to turn to today. But knowing that she is an equal heir, equally dependent, equal needy of God's grace, as you are, should drive husbands to treat their wives differently knowing those two things about her. And those two things are at the same time. So to say she's weaker seems like it, it, it puts her down. But then to say that she's an equal heir of grace elevates her. So you've got this tension there. And you, husband, are meant to be in the middle holding that tension together. So it, it should move, to know that she's weaker should move us to take the initiative to protect and provide for her. We'll talk more about that in just a bit. But... That should move us, knowing that she's the weaker vessel. But then knowing that she's dependent on God's grace should temper our expectations of our wives so that we don't press them harshly and have these demands of them that are unreasonable and unrealistic, knowing that God's got to work in her heart if she's going to change. You don't fix your wife. I hope you know that by now, husbands, if you've been married for any amount of time. You don't fix your wife. You don't change your wife. But if she needs to grow, and she does, and you do too, God's grace is what's going to have to happen. God's grace is going to have to be there to make the changes that need to be made, whatever they are. So that's the first piece that we need to start. We need to start there. Before we talk about submission, we need to talk about equality. We need to talk about this reality that we are equal need, equally in need of grace. Secondly, Christian wives, love your husbands. So much is talked about, about husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands that we forget, sometimes we can, that wives are also commanded and instructed to love their husbands. And in a very peculiar way, flip over to Titus 
Titus chapter 2. Famous passage addressing wives and women in the church. Titus chapter 2. Specifically, Peter, uh, Paul, here we go, Peter and Paul together today. Um, Paul is addressing older women in the church. So older women who've been married for a while or even older women who are now widows. So he's addressing older women in the church and he says that they need to instruct younger women in the church. How so? Verse 4, Titus 2, 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. So there's a very important responsibility and place given to older women in the church who've been married for a while, to come alongside, and to educate. That's what the word train means here, to educate younger women on how to love their husbands and how to love their children. Now, Paul puts together a unique word here. He says, train them, educate them to be husband lovers. And the love piece of that word that he uses is the word that refers to affection specifically. So older women have a responsibility to model while they're married and also train and instruct and educate younger women how to have affection for their husbands. That's an odd thing. But is it? Some of you who have been married for a while might know how difficult it can be to express affection for your husband. It's not always easy. Because we husbands are not always very lovable. Right? (laughs) And so it takes some training for a woman to know, how do I love a man who sometimes is an idiot and sometimes is not very respectable and is sometimes just blatantly sinful? How do I have affection for him? Well, you, you need some training, probably. You need some modeling. And I trust that some of the women who have been married for longer have been through it, know what to do, know how it's done, and can give some pointers, (laughs) some tips for some of the younger wives who might be struggling in that very area. But it's important to remember that wives have a responsibility to have affection for their husbands, not just a self-sacrificial commitment to love this guy. That's true, too. That's implied. But the particular word that's used here is a focus on having affection for your husband's. And so we need to remember that wives have that responsibility as well. Now, we've got to spend the bulk of our time talking about submission this morning. And so we want to move into that. Christian wives are also instructive to submit to your husband. And so as we focus on submitting to their husbands and spend the bulk of our time talking about that topic, we need to remember that the essence of the marriage relationship is not about authority and submission. Even though we're going to spend most of our time talking about that this morning, the essence of the marriage relationship is not authority and submission. Rather, the essence of the marriage relationship is a covenant of equals joined by God in love, becoming one flesh. That's the essence of marriage. Unity and love are primary characteristics of the marriage relationship. But Within that relationship, there is a God-ordained order, which includes an authority responsibility structure. Nevertheless, we focus on this aspect because of its repeated emphasis in, in Scripture and 
because of confusion and disagreement about what it's supposed to look like. So let's dive in. You're still there in Titus 2, perhaps. I went ahead and flipped to the wrong page, so my bad. Forgot where I was going. Titus 2, 4 and 5. We go back there for just a moment because in Titus 2, 5, Paul's going to give us a reason. And that's what we're going to look at here. Paul and Peter both give us reasons, give wives reasons for why they should submit to their husbands. It's not just a naked command, do this, it's your duty. But there are good reasons that the apostles give us. And so back to Titus 2, the first reason they give us is an evangelistic reason. Why should you submit to your husbands? So that God's word may not be reviled. Titus 2, 4 and 5. So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, or better, working for the home, uh, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So, Older women are given a responsibility to train younger women to be all of these things. All of these things that he's talking about, including training to be submissive to their own husbands. Why? So that God's word may not be reviled. What does that mean? Well, it seems that Paul recognizes here that respectful submission in the home reflects a woman's submission to God's word. Disregarding a husband's authority may communicate to the outside world, that this God is not a God of order, but a God of chaos. Or, or it may communicate to the outside world that following Jesus actually results in libertarian freedom, an uninhibited freedom to do whatever I want to do. The reputation of the gospel is at stake in how we who claim to follow Jesus conduct ourselves within our families. And Paul here highlights wives' submission to their husbands as one aspect that the world can see. We need to look at a second reason. Back to 1 Peter 3. Why should wives submit to their own husbands? So that an unbelieving husband may be one. So there's another evangelistic reason here. But before we get into the verses specifically, as we enter into 1 Peter 3, we have to take stock of the larger context in 1 Peter Peter's instructions to wives come in the context of a larger discussion that started back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. These verses give the overarching reason that Christians are to submit in various kinds of relationships. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, Christian wives are to submit to their husbands, even their non-believing husbands, as an expression of keeping their conduct honorable among the observing, non-believing world, with the hope that not only an unbelieving spouse may be one, but also that non-believing neighbors might be one. Peter first commands all Christians to submit themselves for the Lord's sake to every human governmental institution in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Why? Verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Got a lot of those around these days. Then in verse 18, 
Peter addresses Christian slaves, commanding them to submit themselves to their masters with all respect, as the ESV says, or as the 2011 NIV says, in reverent fear of God, even when their masters are unbelievers and even when their masters treat them harshly. So, submission becomes an important expression of the fear of the Lord. Said differently, for Christians to submit to human authorities is a proper expression of our relationship with Jesus. Then, as Peter reflects on the unjust, unavoidable suffering that might result for Christian slaves, he can't help but draw the connection to the unjust, unavoidable suffering of Jesus which widens his application to all Christians, not just Christian slaves. We are to follow Jesus' example when we suffer unjust, unavoidable mistreatment at the hands of others with authority, whether masters or governments. Trust God and refuse to return evil for evil. We are to conduct ourselves this way so that our non-believing neighbors and even our persecutors might see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Finally, Peter turns to Christian wives, and he's thinking especially of wives who became Christians while their husbands remained devoted to some pagan religion. But the call for submission is for all Christian wives, whether their husband is a Christian or not. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 says, likewise. Now, let's pause and consider what likewise means. I think he's going back to the way, the way Christian slaves are to submit themselves to their masters. What way is that? In reverent fear of God. So Christian wives are to submit themselves to their husbands, likewise, as a proper expression of their relationship with Jesus. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, just say a word of clarification here and what Peter's saying and what he's not saying. Peter is not saying that for a husband to be saved, for a non-believing husband to be saved, they don't necessarily have to hear the gospel. Okay? Peter's already told, how does a person become a Christian? That was in chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. It happens through the Word of God, through the Gospel. It doesn't happen any other way. So the scenario that Peter's working with here is that this woman, this wife, has become a Christian. She heard Christian preaching somewhere, and she converted. She came, God gave her new life, and she became a Christian. She goes home, and presumably, like anybody, she would go home and tell her husband what happened to her, that she's now follower of Jesus. And his response at that moment, being a Roman pagan, is, I don't want to hear any more about that. Now, presumably, at that moment, she told him the gospel. She told him what she has come to believe now, and he rejects that. So he's heard the message. The seed has been planted. Now, because he doesn't want to hear it anymore, Peter says to the Christian wife, don't pester him, don't drive him crazy by keeping on bringing it up. Instead, show him how Jesus has changed your life. Show him by the way you live your life in your home and in the way that you remain submissive to him that you are different. 
show him what that looks like, that he might be one later on. Now we need to raise the question, what does submission mean? What does submission mean? So let me give you a definition of submission that we're working with here. It is a voluntary choice to submit yourself, to choose to yield, to defer, to allow your husband to carry the responsibility for leading. One Christian wife fleshes it out like this. Out of obedience to Christ, submission involves a wife responding to, respecting, and yielding to the leadership of the husband God has given her. This is not to be done passively, whatever you say, dear, but actively as a wife boldly, graciously, and persistently states her perspective and sense of what is wise, and as she gives her husband accountability, confronting him with, when he sins. She adds a little later on, a wife's respectful yielding to her husband is, listen, husbands, a wife's respectful yielding to her husband is not a right to be demanded or controlled by any man. It is a gift given by the wife. And when we talk about submission, the other side of the coin is authority. Okay? Someone submits to someone else who has authority over or responsibility for that person. An Australian seminary professor named Mark Thompson defines husbandly headship or husbandly authority like this. It is bearing the responsibility to take the initiative in service and to bear the cost of an unrelenting commitment to the welfare of the other, to the welfare of the wife. Submission, then, includes acknowledging the responsibility and yielding to the initiative taken. Thompson goes on to say, Male headship is self-effacing, not self-promoting, committed to the welfare of the other, the welfare of the wife, not promoting control, domination, or abuse. Responsible authority, or leadership, is about providing direction and guidance through persuasion and advice. It is not ruling or dominating, forcing or bullying. It is not demanding one's own way for one's own selfish purposes. And in this case, with Jesus' authority... Jesus' responsibility, Jesus' headship over the church as the model that we'll see in Ephesians 5, it includes the ideas of taking responsibility to ensure that the family is protected and provided for. Often, Jesus provides for his church through his church. So this idea that the husband is responsible to provide for his family doesn't necessarily imply that he is always to be the sole breadwinner. It might look like that, but it also might look like a wife willingly exercising her God-given skills outside the home to bring in some needed income for the family's financial obligations to be met. But if this reality plays out because of the husband's laziness, or his failure to take responsibility, then we have another problem that needs to be dealt with. Nevertheless, as part of the responsible authority of husbands that Christian wives are here commanded to submit themselves to, 
Husbands should be seeking whatever ways they can, even at cost to themselves, provide resourcefully for their wives to flourish in the home, in the church, and in the world. When this is happening, of course, wives rarely complain about being commanded to submit themselves to their husbands. One Christian wife characterizes this biblical authority of husbands as an authority of love rather than an authority of power. Now, this command to submit yourself is often connected in the Scriptures to respect. Ephesians 5.33 gives us this summary command. Ephesians 5.22 begins with the command, Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands. And then at the end of that passage, after he addresses husbands and tells them to love their wives and paints out what that's supposed to look like, he comes to the end of the passage, gives a summary, and Ephesians 5.33 says, Let the wife see that she respects her husband. One commentator has rightly pointed out that Paul is not thinking here of the kind of respect that is earned but a respect based on one's position. I've thought a lot about this in recent days especially because we are often put in a position where the authority to whom we are submitting, pick your authority, a boss at work, a president of the United States, a governor of New York State, a local authority figure, pick, or your your husband in the family. They are often not acting very respectably. They are not acting or speaking or condoning themselves in ways that earn or deserve respect. And yet, and yet, repeatedly, in all of those areas, we are still commanded to respect them. How do we do that? How do we respect someone who is not respectable in their behavior, in their conduct, in their treatment of other people? We respect the office. We respect the office. What does that look like? Well, it it means that we refuse to speak poorly of that office. It means that when we talk about that office and the person holding that office, we always seek to speak respectfully. We address them or refer to them by their title, by their office. We don't refer to them in pejorative or disrespectful ways. I'm talking to wives about husbands, but you can tell I'm talking about other things too probably. We Christians need to be careful about the way that we speak about the authorities in our life that we don't like, whether in our home or outside of our home. We should respect the office here. Now we come to a third reason for submission. We've looked at two. Now we're coming to a third one, and we're going to go to Ephesians 5 now, finally. So a third reason that's given, why the husband's headship. We've mentioned the term. Let's look at what it means. At least five times in the New Testament, Christian wives are instructed to submit to their own husbands. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24 is probably the most well-known of these. If the first two passages we looked at provided an evangelistic reason for submission, this one provides a theological reason and shows us that submission is not merely pragmatic or cultural. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Even though Paul sets up wives as parallel to the church in this analogy, that's not all that can be said. Truly, 
as we talked about in our time of communion, wives' submission to their husbands also follows the example of Jesus. Mark Thompson again writes, Christ's determination to honor his Father and his willingness to submit his will to the will of his Father with an unshakable confidence in his Father's goodness and love provides a model for a woman's recognition of male headship. That's hard in positions where a wife cannot have the same kind of confidence in the goodness or love of a husband. We need to acknowledge that. This realization, though, that a wife is reflecting Jesus in her submission can help Christian wives embrace submission as in no way demeaning their value. Thompson again writes, Just as the son delights to do the will of his father without in any sense being less than the father, so differentiation of person, function, and role between human beings does not imply that one is less in any sense than the other. This is what makes the call for wives to submit to their husbands so radical, so countercultural, whether in the first century or today. Wives are called to submit to someone who is biblically declared their equal. Rebecca Merkel writes in her book, Eve in Exile and the Restoration of Femininity, which I recommend to you, Christ did not consider it robbery to humble himself and submit to an equal, and neither should we, wives. Because when we picture that submission, we are picturing the most potent form of glory that there is. These famous verses in Ephesians are part of a much larger discussion that begins in Ephesians 5.15, where Paul commands all Christians, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Christians should conduct themselves wisely, even in the privacy of their homes, and especially in the most intimate of household relationships. More specifically, however, Paul issues another command in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That positive command, be filled with the Spirit, or as the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, be filled by the Spirit, is addressed to the whole church as God's temple, not particularly to each individual within the church. He's saying... Y'all, as a church, as a body together, as God's temple, need to be filled, need to experience the full measure of the Holy Spirit's power, filling your church with the full measure of God's presence and power among you together. Then verses 19 to 21 add a series of participial phrases that flesh out what it looks like for a church to obey the command, be filled by the Holy Spirit. What does it look like? Well, we'll be regularly singing to each other and to the Lord. We'll be constantly thanking God for everything, and we'll be submitting to one another in appropriate ways. And then Paul further fleshes out what submission should look like in certain relationships from 5.22 through chapter 6, verse 9. Wives to husbands, children to parents, and slaves to masters, with also some direction for the other party in each relationship. 
how husbands should treat their wives, fathers their children, and masters their slaves. So there's a diagram, if we'll put that next slide up on the screen, that you can see how this looks visually. If you like visuals and colors and things, that's the structure of these verses, how Paul's arguing here. When Christian wives are submitting to their husbands, Christian husbands are loving their wives, children are obeying their parents, Christian parents are raising their children according to the Scriptures, and in Paul's first century context, Christian slaves are sincerely obeying their masters, and Christian masters are treating their slaves gently. When all of these things are happening in a church, you can be sure that the Holy Spirit is at work filling that church by transforming the individual members. Said the other way around, show me a church, show me a church where wives are seeking to lead their husbands along and husbands are giving up their responsibility in this area and we'll be looking at a church that is certainly not being filled by the Holy Spirit. Wives, one of the important things that this means for you is that to submit yourself to your husband requires the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You can't do this in your own strength. No matter how good, no matter how loving, no matter how gentle your husband is, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to live this out. The reason Paul gives for wives to submit to their own husbands is found again in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. The head-body metaphor is an anatomical metaphor. To understand the point Paul's making, we need to think about the relationship between our physical head and our physical body. The main idea is essentially the idea of giving direction. We turn our head to the left and our body follows and goes to the left. We turn our head to the right and our body follows and goes the direction that the head is pointing. Now, of course, I can turn my head and I can still walk to the right. It's harder. If you don't know, you can try it later. It's a little harder There's something unnatural about it. Um, But that's the image that Paul's simply working with. Nothing more complicated than that. The head points the way. For my body to walk, for my body to make progress, for my body to advance, more to move effectively in another direction, typically, normally, my head is going to point the way. My physical head sets the direction for my body's movement. Christ's headship over the church works that way. He sets the direction. And in each marriage, God has given the responsibility for setting the family's direction to the husband. We'll talk more about what that practically looks like at the end of our time. But first, let's return to 1 Peter 3. And take a look at our primary biblical illustration of a submissive wife. Surprise! It's Sarah from the book of Genesis. Submission in marriage is illustrated by Sarah's obedience to Abraham. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's get it in front of us again. Just verses 3 through 6 now. 1 
1 Peter 3, 3 through 6. Do not... So he's addressing Christian wives again. He just told them that their respectful and pure conduct might win their non-believing husband. And then he goes on. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter is reading the book of Genesis. And if you need to familiarize yourself with Sarah's story, go home and read Genesis chapter 12 through 25. That should cover it. It's not really the story of Sarah, but she's a character in the unfolding of the story. Of course, Abraham and his interactions with God is the main feature. However, Sarah plays a prominent role there, and Peter's reading his Bible. Peter is reading Genesis, and he says, Sarah's a good example of what I'm talking about. And if you read through that story, that might shock you or surprise you. So let me just point out five places in Sarah's story, and I'm going to run through these real fast. Five places in Sarah's story where we can see, just reading the book of Genesis, where she obeyed Abraham. And then we're going to point out the fact that Peter doesn't point to any of those. He points to something else, a little bit obscure. So number one, Sarah obeyed Abraham in leaving their home and their family in Genesis 12. So we don't see her arguing or complaining. Maybe she did behind the scenes, but the story doesn't tell us that she did. But they leave, and she goes. Number two, Sarah obeyed Abraham in deceiving foreign rulers about her identity in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, twice. Now, we're going to raise a question a little bit later. We might wonder, maybe she should have not submitted to Abraham in this particular case. He told her to sin, and she did. We might wonder about that example Or we could think about it a little bit differently. Perhaps, perhaps, like Christ, she submitted to her husband, putting herself at risk to suffer for Abraham's sake. Perhaps we could view it like that. Number three, Sarah obeyed Abraham in having all the males of the household circumcised in Genesis 17. Got to wonder, did she raise any puzzled questions about, what are we doing now? Why are we doing that? We're not given any of that in the text, but she at least went along, it seems. Number four, Sarah obeyed Abraham in accepting a new name in Genesis 17. She had spent her whole life as Sarai. And now she's to be called Sarah by her husband and everybody else. Number five, Sarah obeyed Abraham in allowing her son to be sacrificed in Genesis 22. And we could raise the question there, maybe Abraham didn't tell her about that. We're going to be gone for a little bit. We'll be back later. And I wonder, we can ask later on (laughs) what unfolded behind the scenes there. But Peter doesn't point to any of those. Instead, Peter refers specifically to a random occasion where she calls Abraham Lord, my Lord. In Genesis 18.10, while Sarah was inside the tent eavesdropping on their conversation... Yahweh, the Lord, tells Abraham 
that Sarah will give birth to their son in exactly one year. Then in Genesis 18.12, we read, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Why does Peter refer to this statement as a key biblical indication that Sarah obeyed Abraham in order to show that her posture toward her husband is the model for Christian wives everywhere. My guess, and that's all it is, is that if Sarah refers to Abraham as my Lord in her private musings when she's talking to herself, that must reflect her regular practice. The what we say in our unguarded moments when we're talking to ourselves or thinking out loud tends to reveal what's in our heart, doesn't it? So perhaps Peter sees this as an indication that Sarah had been in the habit of referring to her husband as my Lord, and referring to him that way reflects her posture of respectful submission and obedience to him throughout her life. I wonder, Christian wives, what a bit of self-examination would reveal for how you tend to refer to your husband Something to think about. Now we come to the end of this piece of the discussion and I I feel compelled to talk about some places when not to submit. Because you you hear the words in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands in everything. And you see 1 Peter's example here that a Christian wife is supposed to submit to her husband even if he doesn't believe in Jesus. So is that unqualified submission or are there exceptions? Well, I think there are, and it's important to highlight them. But as a caution, wives shouldn't be looking for excuses and reasons not to, but know that there are circumstances. There are circumstances that the Bible supports a woman resisting respectfully but genuinely a husband's attempt to express authority. That's very important to know. Throughout Peter's letter, he emphasizes the importance of the Christian's holy, honorable, and good conduct, also referred to repeatedly as doing good deeds. Thus, Peter's insistence that it's the pure conduct, the pure conduct of Christian wives that may win their unbelieving husbands points to the possibility of times when wives should not submit to their husbands because submitting to their husband would result in impure conduct. That can't win their husband. I think we can extend this appropriately to marriage where the husband is a believer, marriages where he claims to be a believer but really isn't, and also where he's an unbeliever, as Peter's talking about. Paul says that wives must submit to their husbands in everything. We shouldn't press the point to its literal extreme. Instead, we could summarize Paul's point negatively by saying there shouldn't be an area of a wife's life that is outside the realm of the husband's authority, responsibility, and care. A wife shouldn't have these little closed-off places that's just her own selfish possession that the husband doesn't know about or have any input into. That's what Paul means. For a woman to submit in everything means in every area. There's nothing off limits here, but don't press it to its literal extreme. 
She can't, a wife can't and shouldn't submit to her husband absolutely all the time because his authority isn't absolute. Only Christ's authority is absolute. And there may be times when a husband exercises his authority in a way that would create a conflict between his wife's submission to him and her allegiance to Christ. I can see six scenarios where a Christian wife should not submit to her husband because she would be led into unholy, impure conduct, which does not line up with the gospel she professes to believe. I'm going to be fast through here, but I will list them. You'll see them on the screen. You can jot them down in your notes. And every one of them is framed when submitting would cause a wife to do six things. One of six things. Any of six things. When submitting would cause a wife to, number one, transgress a biblical principle or specific command in Scripture. Not just, you can find a chapter and verse in here that says, thou shalt not, or thou shalt, and the husband says, yes, you shall, when the Bible says you shall not, but also biblical principles. Okay, you don't need necessarily a chapter and verse, but if if your husband is leading you, influencing you, pushing you, guiding you into doing something that goes against what the Bible teaches broadly, you should not submit to him in that case. Secondly, when submitting would cause a wife to reject or deny her relationship with Jesus. This is the the live concern for Peter in his audience because the wife has converted to Christianity and in their world, in that Roman world, the husband decides what the religion of the family is. And so you got to know when a woman... When a wife, a Roman wife, begins to follow Jesus and abandon all other gods, that husband, if anybody finds out about that in town, he's going to face ridicule. Man, don't you have control of your wife? You've got to set the terms of your religion. She worships who you worship, not the other way around. A lot of pressure is going to be there in place. And I don't think Peter's call for a wife to submit to her husband means, to an unbelieving husband, means if he tells you you can't worship Jesus, you obey. That would go against everything he's saying. If she doesn't obey Jesus, if she doesn't worship Jesus, how is she going to show her husband what Jesus is like? She can't. And so she should not give in. If he says, we've got to go worship Apollo, she should resist that and not submit. Thirdly, and this is the grayest area of all, but I'm compelled to mention it because it's biblically valid. But it is the one that Christian wives will be tempted to misuse the most. If they're ever tempted to resist their husband's authority, this will be the area that is pressed the most. Violate her conscience. Violate her conscience. If your husband is pressing you to do something that your conscience says would be wrong, even if you can't cite chapter and verse or a biblical principle, You should not submit to that. The conscience is very important. The Apostle Paul talks about it repeatedly and how we should follow our conscience. We need our conscience to be shaped and informed by the Scriptures, and very often it's not. And we, it, it, it improves, ideally, as we go through life. But still, I want to uphold that principle and say there's a reality here that a husband should not be pressing his wife to go against her conscience when she feels guilty about something he's pushing her to do, even if she can't cite Scripture or go to some theological premise about it, she should not submit. Number four, when submitting would cause a wife to endanger her children. 
a husband is abusing a child in another room and he just tells her, you stay out of this, she should not. She should not do that. The last three, four, five, and six here are intimately connected. They're all wrapped up together. Number five, when submitting would cause a wife to enable or support her husband's sin. The classic example of this is if you have an alcoholic's husband and he says, go buy me some more beer, a Christian wife should not submit to that and enable his sin. A recent example that I have to mention here that's becoming more and more prevalent even in the church is a husband instructing his wife to view pornography in their bedroom together to enhance their sexual intimacy together. That is enabling your husband's sin. And wife, you should not give in to that. You should not submit to anything that would enable and cause your, your husband to continue in sin. Number six, when submitting would cause a wife to endure abuse. And I mean that term broadly. Verbal abuse, abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse in the home. A wife should not submit in the case of abuse. Now, I'm compelled to say more about this last one. Some well-meaning, Bible-believing Christian teachers have taught, either explicitly or by pretty clear implication, that Christian wives should submit to their husbands, even if the husband is violently abusing them. And some of them have even pointed to these verses in 1 Peter as justification. Or they've pointed to Paul's words that wives should submit in everything. This is wrong, wrong, wrong. When there is an opportunity to escape abuse, take it. Get help immediately. This issue of submission should not even come up for discussion in such a case. If your husband is a non-believer or someone who claims to be a Christian but is abusing you, whether emotionally or in a manipulative kind of way, verbally, physically, or sexually, and you want to love him, you want to love him through truly pointing him to Jesus by your behavior, as Peter says you should, get away from him and hold him accountable for his abuse. There are plenty of examples in Scripture to support this. Jesus himself teaches us to confront sin as an act of love. And during his ministry, repeatedly, before the time for his suffering to begin, he often escaped situations at the, where he would face abuse from authorities. Where they wanted to hurt him, he got away. Likewise, the Apostle Paul reported his abuse at the hands of the Philippian jailers. He claimed his citizenship to avoid a beating and fled from a city where the authorities wanted to harm him. Abused Christian wives can extend grace to abusive husbands by implementing negative consequences for the abuse. And it must be done. It must be done. That prevents the abuse from having the kind of damaging effects that it normally would have, not only on the abused wife, but also on the man himself. Abusive husbands often need to be firmly stopped. Firmly stopped as a stepping stone toward genuine repentance. Submitting to abuse enables and continues sin. It enables an abuser to continue in sin. I don't want to have any pretense up here 
or make any assumptions. And so I'm going to say a very hard word right now, but it must be said, my dear sisters, if any of you is in an abusive situation, if you're being abused or you're feeling threatened in your own home, please get the help you need. And if that means that you don't leave this building before you tell somebody and get a safe place for you and your children to go, do it. Please, do it. We want to help you. We want to stand against abuse. And we will not tolerate it. Let's have no more of this scripture twisting that has such awful consequences in people's lives. So as we conclude, I'm going to try to wrap up quickly, but strap in. And I hope you'll be patient with the time. I want to talk about what submission actually looks like. Earlier in Ephesians 5, we get some hints as to the shape and contours of what submission should look like. Author Kathleen Nielsen summarizes, Paul tells the church at Ephesus to find out what pleases the Lord in verse 10 and to understand what the Lord's will is in verse 17. Thinking about those commands in the earlier verses helps me understand submission in the later ones. Those commands don't specify certain actions, but they command a heart attitude that seeks to understand and to please. Such an attitude means respecting my husband's will and sometimes bending my own will in response. Every marriage looks a bit different. Different personalities, different gifts, different tendencies, different strengths and weaknesses. So for each different marriage, for each Christian wife, submission might look different than it does in another marriage. So I refuse to lay down a list of rules, you'll be happy to know, and I'm hesitant to provide even any guidelines. Each married couple needs to work this out to, for themselves, figure out how this dance is supposed to look with the husband's particular responsibilities, personalities, and giftings working in tandem with the wife's particular responsibilities, personalities, and giftings. And like in any good dance, which I know nothing about, but I'm told somebody's got to lead. And it's the husband's responsibility in this particular dance. Let me make some generalizations. Generally speaking, submission probably shouldn't come up as an issue very often. The husband's responsibility as head doesn't mean that he's barking orders all the time. And the wife's submissive posture doesn't mean that she can't make decisions and act responsibly unless she has direct instruction from her husband. In fact, a wise husband will often need to entrust much to his wife. If he sees her as a helper fit for him, he'll acknowledge his needs and his dependence on her for their growth and health as a family. If headship is primarily the idea of taking responsibility for setting the direction of the family, that doesn't mean that a husband needs to micromanage the journey. The body cooperates with the head. The husband welcomes input from his wife, even when that input might push against his initial ideas. A particular husband may not be particularly skilled at casting vision, but his wife may have all manner of creativity and a clearer perception even of what thriving biblically looks like. The Bible does establish a clear vision of what marriage and family is supposed to look like, 
I can summarize it in three points. Holiness between husband and wife, raising godly children if you have them, and pursuing obedience to the Great Commission. It's a good summary of what marriage is supposed to look like. The husband and wife should work together to pursue that vision. And the husband especially should take responsibility for seeing that the family is moving in the right direction. The husband shouldn't have or express the attitude that says, what I say goes. Where there's conflict or when there's a lack of growth or progress, the husband should be quick to ask questions and to work together with his wife to move forward. And his questions will usually need to start with, what can I do differently? Both husband and wife should be willing to sacrifice for the other. When there's disagreement, it shouldn't automatically be assumed that the husband's opinion or perspective must be right and must be yielded to. Sometimes it'll work out that way. Husbands need to create safe space for their wives to speak openly and honestly about anything and everything without fear of being put down or dismissed. I have sometimes indelicately joked about the dangers of listening to the voice of your wife. Because every time that phrase is used in Genesis, the outcome is catastrophic. I now realize, carefully rereading Genesis, that listening to the voice of your wife is only a problem when a husband is taking the easy way out or abandoning responsibility. In fact, in my own relationship with my wife, I can say that heeding my wife's counsel often brings the best results. The Bible does grant husbands a measure of authority in the context of a marriage relationship, but it is to be an authority of love and not an authority expressed in power or domination or abuse. The foundation of the marriage relationship is one flesh unity and equality of value. When a Christian wife initiates or has an idea or wants to do something big or new or different, Christian husbands shouldn't view that with suspicion or feel threatened. Instead, responsible, loving husbands will welcome their wives' input, ideas, and initiatives. At the same time, husbands are given a heavier burden of responsibility. Wives shouldn't resent this and certainly shouldn't resent their husband when they actually take the responsibility seriously. Husbands having a the-buck-stops-here attitude should make them more careful in decision-making and it should make them want the input of their wives all the more because we husbands ought to know how much we need our wives' help. That's why God gave them to us. God designed wives to provide the help that men need in order to pursue greater health, greater success, and greater holiness. Also, when a husband seeks to give direction, perhaps he seeks to correct his wife's sinful attitude or behavior in some area, a submissive wife will not resent his attempts to help her grow, even if his attempts are clumsy and even harsh. Or maybe the issue is not sinful particularly, but more a matter of wisdom. For example, if a husband says, Honey, I think it might be good if you spent less time on social media on your phone. A wife ought to try not to explode in anger or defensiveness or say that it's none of his concern what she does with her phone. This is all completely hypothetical, by the way. Just an issue that comes up in families from time to time. Now, her response doesn't necessarily have to be, yes, dear, I'll turn it off right away and never turn it on again. She could reasonably ask some questions. Why do you think it's a problem for me? What have you observed? Then she should listen as he seeks to explain. 
Now, that's a smaller scale leadership issue that comes up in families from time to time. When your husband comes home and says, Honey, I think we need to move to Connecticut and plant a church. A wife probably ought to push for some deeper conversation at that point. The husband has been given the responsibility to give direction for the family. But foolish husbands are the ones who seek to do that unilaterally without the input and even consent of their wives. Some husbands attempt to manipulate their wives by spiritualizing decisions, saying things like, the Lord has told me that we need to move to Connecticut, leaving wives to wonder why the Lord didn't clue them in on that big idea ahead of time. Husbands, you are not the priest of your home. Your wife is equally a priest. We are all priests together. You are not the voice of God to your wife. We need to get that idea out of our heads. Husbands need to recognize that God often uses our wives to bring clarity and sharpening to our visions, no matter how godly or mature we are. Perhaps saying what this relationship of headship and submission is not could be helpful. A husband's headship doesn't mean that a wife can't work outside the home and have a career of her own. Paul's instruction in Titus that wives are to be working at home can be taken as instruction that wives must be working for the home. That is to say, however wives may choose to exercise their particular gifts and resources, it should be oriented to helping develop the home and the family. Thus, a wife's career might be part of that. The danger would be that a wife might pursue a career for other motives, such as self-promotion or to have her own money for her own selfish purposes. A self Uh, A wife's submission doesn't mean that whenever there's a disagreement, the husband necessarily has the tie-breaking vote. In a given situation, a husband and wife may decide together that that would be appropriate in this situation. But we shouldn't lay that down as a rule or a normal pattern of expectation. Instead, when a major decision is on the table and a husband and wife can't come to a final agreement, both parties should carefully examine where selfishness might be a motivator in their own thinking, cut those areas out of the discussion, and then somebody's got to yield. Somebody's got to yield. And it doesn't always have to be the wife. In my own marriage, I have yielded in many decisions. And some might look at that and say I was abdicating my responsibility. And I've even been told that by people. And maybe sometimes I was. But in most cases... I believe I simply recognize that even though at the time I wasn't persuaded that it was the best course of action, whatever consequences I anticipated would be minimal, and we could deal with them together if they came at all. In those cases, looking back, we worked the problem together, we discussed and argued and cross-examined each other, and she got to make the decision, and I sought to carry it through with everything I had. Probably 90% of the time, it worked out without a hitch, and I could look back and see where I had been mistaken. At other times, she has yielded and insisted that I make the call. I think that's a, a happy dance for all of this, and I don't want to parade my marriage out there as though it's a perfect example in this area, but I do want to reframe the discussion just a little bit with my marriage as an illustration. The first thing I think of when I think of Tamara is not that she's a submissive wife. Now, don't take that the wrong way. A hundred other positive adjectives come to mind before that. In our marriage, submission doesn't come up much. 
Instead, I can say that she's a wonderful helper, certainly fit for me, and God has used her in countless ways to enhance my life and enable me to see and to become the man that I am today. I can tell you one story, the exact moment that I decided I was going to marry her, and it involves something, her doing something that most people would look at and say, well, that's not very submissive. She corrected me forcefully and clearly. We were friends at the time, and I just described to her something I was contemplating doing that was incredibly dumb. I'm not going to go into the details of that right now, but she saw very clearly the stupidity of it and said so to my face very plainly, and it took me off guard, and I grumbled about it a bit and argued with her just a bit, but when the conversation was over and she walked away, I just watched her walk, to walk away, and I said, that's the girl I need to marry. So, husbands, you should expect, not only expect it, but you should make space for your submissive wife to challenge, correct, and hold you accountable. You should request it at times, and you should certainly make space for it in your relationship. A submissive wife will not allow her husband to continue in sin or in stupidity for that matter, or in immaturity. Correction should always be done with respect, ladies, which can be hard, as we talked about, but it needs to be a normal part of a healthy marriage. Submission, again, is primarily about how we respond to the authorities God has placed in our lives. If your husband directs you to do something that is neutral or God-honoring, your default posture should be to comply without argument or complaint. However, you should feel free, and your husband should be clearly granting you the freedom, encouraging the freedom to ask questions, propose alternatives, and express opinions. Your tone and manner of doing all these things matters intensely, ladies. Going back to 1 Peter 3, the gentle and quiet spirit that God assesses as so valuable is relevant in these moments. It's not describing a doormat for a husband to trample. Instead, it's describing a vibrant, responsive, loving woman, equally in need of God's grace, just as much as the husband, whose input and involvement is desperately needed by your husband. In the first century Roman world, non-Christians would think very highly of a wife submitting herself to her husband, and that submissive posture would have been expected of all wives. So in that setting, it makes sense that a Roman wife who begins to follow Jesus yet remains generally submissive to her pagan husband would reinforce a good testimony. But what about our culture today? Our culture prizes women's independence and generally looks down on Christian women who seek to obey this particular command in Scripture. Can this teaching of Peter be considered transcultural? How can this be practiced in such a way today in our American culture that has the same impact, reinforcing the good testimony about Jesus? As another general observation, we're almost done, I can say with, this, with certainty that it doesn't look good when Christian wives speak sarcastically about this issue. Also, some form of submission practiced in the privacy of the home while speaking to other people 
in a mocking or dismissive way about your husband does not bring honor to God. Dishonoring your husband dishonors Jesus. You can find those words essentially in 1 Corinthians 11. Submitting to one's husband, allowing him to carry the primary responsibility for the direction of your family is countercultural. The only way that this countercultural way of life will look appealing to the non-believing world around us will be when wives regularly, consistently, and publicly speak well of their husband's responsibility. The flip side is also true. Christian wives should refuse to belittle, mock, or speak dismissively about their husbands to other people, even in a joking kind of way. I'm not talking about situations where you as a wife need to get help for your husband's sin. It's easy to joke about our spouses because we know them best, right? We know their flaws, their weaknesses. And this goes both ways, husbands. I've been guilty recently of drawing negative attention to my wife, and it should never be done from either angle. If you're in a marriage where the husband is passive, let me say this word as well. If you're in a hu- marriage where the husband is passive, doesn't particularly lead or take the initiative, even in ways that you wish he would, what does submission look like there? Some wives might like it that way, let's be honest. Some wives might like it that way, where they're allowed to call the shots, have a lot of independence, do what they want to do. But I bet you'd admit that the intimacy you wish you could have with your husband isn't there either. To wives in that situation, I'd say, repent. Repent of the independent spirit that likes not relying on your husband. But to those who really wished their husbands would step up, what can you do? Thank you for sharing that. It is painful when your marriage is broken this way. Sure. Let me give brief instruction to the, those who want their husbands to step up to the plate. 
because I, I suspect many of your wives are in that situation as well. And what you can do is relatively easy at one level. Give your husband an opportunity to lead and to have input. Give him opportunities to step into your life. Ask for their input and advice more than you already do. Even about things where you feel that you've got it under control. Seek their involvement and be persistent. Truly value their input and communicate how much you value their input. Many passive husbands assume that their wives don't need their input. Or in many cases, in many cases, the wife may have said those very words. I don't need you for this. And the husband may take that as, I don't need you for anything. And then they shut down and abandon responsibility. Ladies, you need to realize that this is one of the greatest temptations out there for men. Even greater than sexual temptation is the temptation to abandon responsibility. To take the easy way rather than the hard way. Independent women can intimidate men. Sometimes, in, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not intentionally. But when an independent woman rejects the aid or input of a man, it just takes one time for some men to completely shut down and give up the responsibility entirely. Final word, and we're done. Christian wives, submit to your own husbands. Submit to them as you submit to your Lord, Jesus, even, even as you know they are not your Lord, Jesus. So yes, your submission is qualified. There are caveats, but don't seek the exceptions. Don't be looking for every loophole. Instead, reflect Jesus' own submission. Display the gospel as a wife who is willing to lay down your own life, your own preferences, your own perceived rights to bring benefit to your husband. You will find, when you do, as Jesus experienced, that there is true joy in submission. God promises to exalt those who humble themselves. This exaltation is for all Christians, but wives are given a unique opportunity to display humility in this way, in this relationship, for all the world to see. And thereby, wives are given a special way of proclaiming the gospel through the way that they live their lives. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we grieve with Amy knowing the truth that marriage is fraught with sin. You put two sinners together in a home and there's bound to be sparks. And sometimes those sparks can kindle into a house fire that destroys everything. And we grieve with those who've experienced that kind of pain. Father, we thank you that marriage can paint a picture of your glory, can paint a picture of the love that Christ has for the church. Father, would you help us to live out these things in our marriages? Help us to get the help we need when there is brokenness, when there is sin, when there is abuse. Help us to find the help that we need. Father, help us to love one another well enough to be involved in each other's lives. Help us to love one another well enough not to leave, us, leave each other alone. And help us to know our own needs better, that we can cry out for help when the time comes. Help us to be a safe place for people to admit this kind of brokenness and to get the help that's needed. And we pray for your grace. We pray for your grace that can heal, heal 
the wounds that have already been done that can't be changed, but we can experience your healing and your grace. And I pray for that for all of us who've experienced that kind of brokenness, whether in our own marriages or in our families or in our neighbors. Thank you, Father, that you're a God of love. Thank you that you love your children and you have brought us into a body, a family, so that we might take care of each other. Help us to do that well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.